Welcome to the Triathlete Hour. This week, we're talking to the one, the only, the legend, Belinda Granger. The 15-time Ironman champ is 50 years old now and has been retired for five years, but she still trains 20 hours a week, just never on the bike. Her day job, though, is working as the pro liaison for Challenge Family Races, and she made her broadcast debut at Daytona Pro Championships on NBC in December to much acclaim. Now, anyone who knows Belinda knows we could have recorded hours and hours of podcast material. We had to stop her at just one hour. And yes, it's hilarious, heartfelt, a little gossipy and 100% insightful. You do not want to miss this one. And first, we're back with Laura Sedol to dissect this new world record attempt as two men and two women attempt to break seven hours and eight hours, respectively, in the iron distance. With a lot of different rules and caveats, we get into it. All of that after this short break. All right, we're back this week with Laura Sedol for Sid Talks. Sid, we have... We had some pretty exciting news this past week. We have the equivalent of the breaking two for triathlon. Uh, They announced they're going to do a sub seven, sub eight project. So the men are going to try and break seven hours for the iron distance. And the women are going to try and break eight. And there's four athletes. So it's Nicholas Spierig and Lucy Charles for the women. Alistair Brownlee, Christian Blumenfeld for the men. The tri world's been all abuzz this week on whether or not they can do this. It's going to be hot and exciting. What do you think? Tell us. I mean, there are a lot of details still missing, but I hear you have a few more details on how this is going to work. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's been a, it's been quite interesting trying to find out some of the details with what's going on. And it certainly did uh, create a bit of a stir. But I mean, there's not much else going on at the moment. And we all needed a bit of <laughs> a bit of something to grasp onto. Um, so, yeah, so it's set for 2022, which is also interesting because in theory, the, the men and and Nicola have the Olympics mm. at the end of this year in theory. And then obviously depending on, on Kona and stuff. So it's not actually that long after those events that they're then potentially attempting to do this sub seven, sub eight. Um, the location is being uh, determined still. I think they're looking at, you know, I think challenge, you know, the track at Challenge Daytona was mentioned it seems to be they might be um, verging more, more towards the Canadian Grand Prix circuit in oh, Montreal, really? where the 1999 World World Triathlon Championships were held. Um, I think that they're obviously working with scientists to work out what's the the fastest flashes. I mean, look, ideally, if you're going to do this, why don't you do a, a one direction, 180 downhill, tailwind kind of thing? You know, we let's taking out we're taking out most of the rules anyway. Um, they're still firming up some of the details, but it looks like there's potentially each athlete can have maybe four or five paces per discipline. So, you know, four or five for the swim, four or five for the bike and four or five for the run, and they can be different, different paces. Mm-hmm. It looks like they're verging towards the same sex paces. So Lucy and Nicola will have female paces. The men will obviously have male paces. Um, they don't have to be triathletes. They're looking to know it can be the best in the sports, you know, broader sport, which I think is where you, where, the, where there's the excitement that this is having a broader appeal. Because let's face it, it's, and as we were talking offline, 
it's not really going to be a world record attempt as we know it because all the rules are being broken. It is looking at what can human potential do, I think, is probably a better way. You know, they're going to be drafting um, in in all of them. There's going to be pacing. Um, They've got scientists involved to, I'm sure, give them the best. There's even going to be like extra thick, buoyant wetsuits, I think. Yeah, wetsuits. I'm sure the bikes are going to be specced so that they are, you know, going as fast as possible. And and again, the running, you know, we've got running shoes already, but with pacers and everything that you've probably seen in breaking two. The, uh, the obviously the biggest difference is going to be the drafting on the bike. Like that's the thing that everyone's yeah. and I've seen. So this is led by uh, the feet or it's funded by the Phoenix Foundation, which is out of oh God, I can't remember Poland. Is that right? Um, it's a part, yeah. yeah. And so it's and, and you know they work with Chris McCormick. So Chris McCormick, and so I've seen him arguing with people on Twitter a bunch this week because everybody <laughs> on Twitter was like, well. Because he never argues with anybody. But his people on Twitter were like, well, if it's going to be drafting, then it doesn't count. You could just have a pack. And he was like, well, it's not going to be drafting. It's just pacing. Like, where's the difference between pacing and drafting? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what they're I don't know what they're going to like regulate that. But it's obviously weird because, yeah, because it comes down to like, well, does this count if you're going to have all these special circumstances and then clearly they've created their own rules like well we're going to have four pacers and they have to be the same gender and then it feels arbitrary but triathlon has its own rules too that are also arbitrary that we've all just agreed on so it's kind of like gets very metaphorical very quickly like what does this all mean yeah I, i mean i think it's in one way it's classic chris mccormack he you know with what he brought on with super league and just his personality and character you know he likes creating a storm so to speak and he's creating um yeah a lot of hype around this and hey if this gets triathlon out to the broader world then I don't see that as a bad thing you know there's already the UK newspapers were doing lots of interviews Mm -hmm. with Alistair Brownlee and that's like not I mean okay Alistair Brownlee is well known in the UK and triathlon's a bit better well known in the UK because of him, but still it's getting it, it's getting it better coverage, which ultimately at the end of the day is what the sport is wanting to bring For sure. more interest, more, more attention to it. Um, whether it is, whether we argue about yeah records and rules and what does that mean and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. I'm not so sure. I think, you know, yeah, with four people or five people, like for the bike yes there is drafting but it's not going to be a pack you're not going to have like you know 20 riders that you're surrounded by it is going to be more that pace line which let's put it this way it whilst that will gain you potentially a lot of time that's still hard work that's still 180 k's on your aero bars and if we looked at daytona and the effect that just that, you know, whatever the distance was of there of being on aero bars for that long and then people trying to run you know they've still got to manage that plus over seven, eight hours, mechanicals, sure. uh, just getting that slight bit of nutrition wrong, cramping, anything like that. So um, it's still going to be, it, it, it's definitely not taking away those rules or rewriting their rules doesn't make it any any easier, I, mean, I don't think. It makes it a little bit easier. It makes really? it a little bit easier. But it doesn't make it yeah. easy. Yeah. They've, got, look, they've got more room to play with. Right. They've got the scientists involved, so potentially they can look yeah, you know, what they could do from a science perspective is quite exciting. If we do take, you know, you do take, you know, sort of throw away the throw away the rule book as we know it. Um, yeah, so, yeah, interesting. I, I mean, 
So this is modeled, obviously, after the Breaking 2, which if everybody watched that, uh, 2017, Kipchoge, and they did it on, like, the track and the Nike, and there was pacers and, like, a windshield and all stuff. And so, yeah, it didn't necessarily, it wasn't a world record, but I was watching it on my phone in a bar, like, because of the time difference. And, I, like, people were really into it, right? Like, it was definitely so yeah. very exciting. And then when he did, he actually broke two at the indios project whatever they all have weird names for these things yeah, yeah. <laughs> and people you know everyone around the world was watching so i think there's this idea that like well it still can be really exciting um maybe it'll be the most exciting thing that happens in triathlon this next year yeah, yeah. <laughs> who knows but then the question think, obviously is will they do it is the next half yeah. of it so alistair's so that, pr is like 740 let me look it up 745 yeah. so he has to take 45 yeah. minutes off and Lucy's is like 8.36-ish, so she has to take 36 minutes off. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah, and Christian's never done a full. Right. And I'm not sure Nicola has. Or I thought she had done a full, though. Like it, I thought she had, ago. too, but I don't I think, think it was like... And she won it, I'm pretty sure, yeah. but I can't quite... Yeah, so I think um, when I was breaking that down into what times and stuff, I... Like the the men's was something like if you do like a forty minute swim and I've put the swim similar to the men and the women, it's like a sub three fifty bike and a two thirty yeah, run, yeah, something like that. And the women's is you know that forty minute swim, which I think is totally capable, Lucy. Um, four thirty bike and a two fifty run. To me, for Lucy and potentially Nicola, I think that seems a lot more attainable right. with with having the pacers and having. Um, that sort of support I think the men's is probably a bigger chunk to to take off and so that's why the where it's um a little bit more challenging but then the other interesting thing is also like whilst the, so that it's also going to be competed like the two teams so you are it's almost going to be it will be a race between the two so they might you know both women might break sub eight but the person who wins is going to get the accolades kind of thing and Do obviously get- Lucy's going to win is there money? Do they get money too if they bring? So, I'm guessing they do, <laughs> even though it's for charity. So it is, but I'm guessing there must be something at the end. I haven't got that quoted. And so, yeah, if there's still going to be that race between the two, we know that Lucy's going to be ahead of Nicola out of the water, and then it's going to be throughout the rest of the race. Is right. Nicola going to be calling, getting that time back? And then that goes into who do you pick as your paces and stuff. Um, I mean, they're going to be selling, they're going to be selling tickets and packages for people to go and watch. So I think that's where the lapped circuit comes into it. Um, for sure. But yeah, with with Christian having never done a full, um, and also obviously his, he's obviously done some halves very well, <laughs> very very successfully. Um, but again, the focus is probably going to be on the Olympics, and so that's very much the short distance. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, the other thing that uh, is interesting, if you're like, if you, for, you know, triathlon nerds, the other thing that's interesting is we reported that, and this, is, this has been confirmed, that Daniela turned it down. Daniela Reef, current world, yeah. like best in the world. And we don't know if Jan Fredino did as well, but one has to assume they reached out to him. And my assumption is that Daniela, and I don't know this, this is speculation, but my assumption is Daniela turned it down because she wants to set the actual world record, right? And have it be like certified and like on the record books, which raises like the other half of the question of like what qualifies as a world record in triathlon? Because we don't have running the way like running records are very certified, right? Like you have to hit like set distance rule, like there are rules about it, how it works. Triathlon world records are kind of 
Well, they were set, you know, the current Iron Distant record from Chrissy Wellington from 2011 still stands from Challenge Roth. But Roth, we all know, is a short distance. And then everyone set records at Ironman Texas like four years ago, but it was like four miles short and it was like draft. <laughs> so you're like, well, what counts as yeah. world record? Like, are we just going to keep making it like shorter and shorter and <laughs> shorter? Yeah, and it, I guess it's a bit like we also seem to have so many world championships events as well at the moment. What is our world championship? Um yeah, it's interesting. I again, I don't know if Jan was spoken to, um, and I think you know Daniela also says probably some other athletes around that could have been. I know Cam Worth, I think, has been pretty vocal about. It. He's the only one who thinks he could have done it. Um, <laughs> I heard that on a podcast as well. Um, I again listening to a few podcasts around it. They were very much talking about the types of athletes they chose or were speaking to for it. You know, I think in the nicest possible way there's got to be a little bit of a arrogance or confidence about confidence. the athlete confidence, <laughs> confidence. <laughs> edit that bit out otherwise I'll get <laughs> um in terms of what they think they can achieve um I, and I again I think like you said with Danielle I wouldn't be surprised if that was her reasoning for turning it down to have you know she wants to do it on in in Again, in an official iron distance race, whatever that means, I think it is so hard. I always do laugh when people do talk about PRs and course records and stuff like that. And it's like, but it changes. Mm -hmm. It changes every year. It's not like a even, you know, it's not like an athletics track where it's that 400 meter track and you can pretty, you can have pretty controllable conditions. And even then you get the wind, you know, they have wind um restrictions on what is classed as a world record or in not like if the wind is field, yeah, values yeah. And stuff on track and field yeah but we don't we don't have that in triathlon because we don't have a overarching standards or governing body so yeah it's very hard to kind of say is it a record and, and not but at the same time everyone loves claiming they've got a course record or a world record or the fastest iron distance oh, time. Yeah. And that, I only want to do Roth so that I can have a fast iron man yeah. that I can brag about. Just so <laughs> no, you know. I can confirm that Roth is legit. I've done that totally <laughs> legit. <laughs> it's just super fast roads. <laughs> um, this is why you need, like, obviously for the pros, Torsten Rad does, like, comparisons of, you know, one race versus another, year versus year, and you can, like, kind of compare them and what we need is some kind of website that allows you to feel like well is this was this performance better than this performance was my race yeah. here better than this race? and i have to say so i don't know if you have this i discovered this past weekend usa triathlon now has this really cool thing if you've got once you're a member you can go in and see your previous races like your rank your stats and they have calculated i have no idea how they did this a points for every one of your races so then you can see like comparatively all of your races and how they stacked up to each other and i was like oh wow like i apparently this performance is better than this performance even though i actually placed low right and you yeah. go down a hole very quickly but that is kind of cool because then it like <laughs> quantifies which course was better you know better than which it's one I mean, that's so hard. I mean, I've been looking at like, say, look, the PTO rankings and how that's all being calculated. And I just still think it's in triathlon. I, I don't have the answer, but I just think it's so hard to try and rank courses via courses. Like, I think the statisticians and, and Thorson do the best job they can, but there's so many differences at play, like road surfaces and then conditions and, you know, an eleva elevation on on a spreadsheet and on an algorithm can say one thing, but actually in reality, it's, 
it's completely different because of you know I, I can you know challenge Wanaka as a course doesn't have huge elevation but it's probably one of the toughest courses and slowest around and how do you know that if you haven't actually been there raced it to then compare it to a um, you know another course in the in the US which is then what you're trying to trying to normalize it I, I don't envy the guys who have to try and do that for our sport to give some kind of rankings right to, yeah it's it's so hard and of course if you ask anyone who did a race whatever race they did is the toughest the lowest hardest, hardest exactly so totally. <laughs> all right guys so tell us which races are the toughest hardest slowest and which are the fastest um i, I actually want to hear what everybody thinks well thanks so much for chatting with us sid and we'll be keeping an eye on the whole sub seven sub eight over the next year yes see how it goes could be the only thing that's keeping us going <laughs> It's very exciting for triathlon. So, yeah. All right. This week, we're talking to the one and only, the infamous Belinda Granger, 15-time Ironman champ, Challenge Rothwood. I feel like now you're best known as the commentator for Challenge Daytona, the star of NBC. (laughs) Oh, it's funny. Look, I I think what I am is a lover of all things triathlon. I think that is probably the best way to describe me, and, and it's been like that ever since I started in the sport, I think at the age of 21 um, or 20 or 21. It's so long ago, I can't remember. Um, So yeah, I'm just a lover of triathlon. I was from the start and I still am. So which is harder, racing or commentating? Oh my gosh, definitely racing. (laughs) I, I actually feel like Daytona was my absolute dream job because I had two jobs over there to look after the pro athletes and to commentate on one of the most amazing races that I've ever witnessed. And for me, that's a dream come true. And I was lucky enough to have two commentators in the booth that were absolute experts at their at their craft. Um, and then, you know, we threw in Torsten Rad, who was an expert in stats, and me, who was an expert in all the triathletes, all the pro athletes that are racing. So I think it was a really nice combination and it was a dream job. If I could do that every day of the week, I would be one happy girl. They did say it was the the other two guys, Rowdy Gaines and the NASCAR commentator. I can't think of. Did say, oh, <laughs> Belinda, Belinda just knows everything about everybody, just like off the top of her head. <laughs> it's funny. I, I think I, because I take this job so seriously as as pro- professional liaison, and because I genuinely am concerned about all the pro athletes, I want them to be able to be professional athletes, and I want them to be able to succeed. And, and have this as their profession for as long as possible because I was lucky enough to have it. Um, so I do have a vested interest and I do like to know the personal side of these athletes as well. And it's my personality as well. I've come on, let's be serious. I love, you know, I, I, I love getting to know people. So um, I think I, I feel like I've got that little bit of added dimension. I, maybe I'm not as good as at knowing everyone's, every individual athlete's watts and power and all the, the, the scientific side of it. That's what we, we call on Torsten Rad for that. Um, I'm more into the nitty gritty and to the, um, the personal side of, of the pro athletes, which I think is interesting as well, obviously. Uh, I think what we would normally call that is gossip, right? You're more into gossip, the- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I'm trying to think of a professional way of saying it. But yeah, you're right. It's, it's the gossip side. And uh, all of my friends back here in Noosa, we always laugh because whenever we, we go running and they want to know about a pro athlete or what someone's doing, they always say, hey, Belinda, you know what's going on? And of course, I give them the rundown and it's like, thanks, we're up to date now. So, so you officially <laughs> finally retired like five years. I feel like I think it, it took like two times trying to retire yeah. before it stuck, right? 
it was it was a very very long drawn out retirement i think there was an international retirement and then there was a domestic retirement so i think it took two years in total yes but you still i see your instagram you still work out probably more than than i do like you still work out a lot you still work out like how much how much are you doing these days like all the time i I must admit i'm i do still try to work out every morning and every afternoon um i don't always get the afternoon session in because of work um and often but i'll still get out so whether it's just to walk the dogs or run the dogs i'll still do something in the afternoon but it might not be a, a specific session as such but i probably still do um about 15 to 20 hours of training a week. It's hard not to. I mean, I my close-knit girlfriends here in Noosa, um, some of them are still professional athletes. Some of them are freshly retired, like obviously Beth McKenzie and Luke McKenzie, and I still like training with them, and we all still um, get together probably four or five times a week to do some sort of training sessions. And, of course, my favourite one is uh, Sunday morning run with the long, long run with the girls, which is basically a, a hot, we call it our hypoxia session because we literally don't shut up for about an hour and a half of running. Um, so, yeah, I, I need to do it for my own sanity. I think once once you're an athlete and it's been such a huge part of your life for so many years, it's pretty tough to give it up completely. I'm definitely not as competitive as I was. Um, some people will laugh at that and say that's a load of bullshit. But anyway, um, I don't think I'm as competitive as I used to be, but I, I, I still enjoy it. I just do I just do different things now. So a little bit of running, um, a little a tiny bit of swimming. Uh, obviously, F45 I've been doing now for quite a few years and I absolutely love it. I've just come from there. And I love it because it's 45 minutes, you're in and out. Um, so it's perfect for me with work. Is it like, uh, sorry, I, what is that? Is it like an interval strength training thing? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a combination. So it's, it's a HIIT training and strength training. Oh. So it's 45, 45, it's called F45, Functional 45. Started here in Australia, but it's actually huge in America now. Um, so you've got studios all over America. Um, and it's, um, it's a HIIT training session for 45 minutes on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then on a Tuesday, Thursday, it's strength training. So today I did 45 minutes of strength training. Um, and it's just convenient. You know, I, I, it's exactly four and a half K for me to run there. I run there, do the strength set, run home. And that's training done for the morning. And then it sets me up for a great day of work. And usually in the afternoon, I either do another run or walk the dogs or, um, walk stairs. So there's always something, but, um, always something. are yeah, you going to do a triathlon again? Is this ever going to no, happen? No, never, never, never. I don't, I don't swim that often. And I, and the crazy, actually Kelly, the craziest thing is, when I was a professional triathlete, honestly, I, I mean this honestly, the only thing that I showed natural ability or talent for was was the bike. That's what I was best at. That's what won me so many races. That and probably my stubbornness. Um, but but it's the only thing I don't do anymore. I haven't ridden my bike for really? almost a year now just because it's so time-consuming. I mean, mm. to, to ride here in Noosa, you really need to get up early. I'm not a fan of early mornings, I'll be honest. Um, so... I just don't do it anymore. And I still have my bike in my garage. I will never sell it. It will always be there. But I just don't get out that often. Once every every any once every blue moon, Beth or, or my husband will convince me to go out for a two-hour ride. But then I won't do it again for another three months because it, I'll be exhausted from it. Um, and it's two hours. And I still feel like I get more out of 45 minutes at the gym than I do out of two hours riding. So, Interesting. yeah, I don't know if a triathlon's on the cards. Unless we change the legs, the discipline's. Right, we you're going to get really into like obstacle course racing or CrossFit. Like that's going to be exactly. your yeah. – Exactly. And then if it finishes with um, sculling a glass or two of wine, then I'm all for it. <laughs> <laughs> 
So what else do you, besides not riding your bike and not getting up early, what else is do you no longer do since you're not a pro athlete anymore? Oh, you know, early morning. It's so funny because Noosa, Noosa is very much like the USA, whereas I am more European. You, you talk hmm. to Europeans about getting up at four in the morning and they almost want to vomit. You know, it's just unheard of. Um, whereas in the US, I know everyone gets up early and trains and it's exactly the same here. It's not unusual. If, if the girls I run with on a Sunday had a say, we'd be running at 4.30 every, mo- every oh, Sunday God. morning. I said, I would not be there. I mean, I had to beg, beg them to make it six o'clock. That's as early as I'll do. Um, and I only do that once a week. So I, I actually love not having to train early in the mornings. You know, 5.30 a.m. swim squad just, ah, oh, it still gives me goosebumps. So I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore. Um, other things, I don't, I'm not as fastidious with my diet. Okay. I naturally have a, a good diet anyway, but, you know, if I want a glass of wine every night with dinner, then I'm going to have it. Whereas back when I was an athlete, I was probably, I still drank, but I was a little <laughs> bit more wary and there were times where I obviously wouldn't drink. Um, so probably that's that's a little different now. But other than that, you know, my, my life hasn't changed that much. I still love routine. I'm still, you know, I'm OCD. So routine, I can't stand being out of routine. And I think with most professional athletes, you know, once they lose routine, they lose everything. They have really? to be uh, have a routine. So and that's why I love to get up every morning and get a session done. I often find if I miss that session because of a work call or something, I'm just a grumpy so-and-so all day um, and I'm not as productive for the rest of the day either. So things haven't changed too much, but um, there's, there is definitely a lot more red wine in my um, in my wine cellar now than there used to be. Okay, and, okay. Yeah, and, and I'm just a little bit more relaxed with, with my diet as well, you know. it's um, I can be. I mean, I was going to say, you mentioned before you're not as competitive as you used to be. Obviously, you were known for being very stubborn, very competitive. Where are you getting that out now? Like, what's your outlet? Yeah, that's, <laughs> so that's why I think if, if anyone, any of my friends were listening to this, they'd be like, yeah, sure, Belinda. I, I still am competitive. I don't think you just lose that. I mean, that, that's something you're born with, you know, and I think you can see that in athletes. I coach a young junior swim squad. I started taking it on. Um, when COVID hit just because I was home a lot more. So on a Monday and Wednesday, I, I coached these gorgeous, and they're between 10 and 13 years of age. And just to see the difference in personality, and we've got some kids that are super talented, ridiculously naturally talented, but they've got not one competitive bone in their body. And so they're relying purely on talent. Mm-hmm. Then you've got these other kids that aren't as talented, but my God, are they competitive. And you can see it straight away. 10 years of age and you can see it. And I was talking to uh, one of the swim coaches there actually last night about it. And I said, isn't it fascinating, the difference? And you can just tell what ones are going to make it, the ones that are going to carry on and swim competitively throughout high school and beyond because of that that sheer determination and then that and that competitiveness that I think is very, very hard to teach. You either have it or you or you don't. Um, and it's quite it's quite amazing for me to be on the other side now and watching it and thinking, oh, yeah, that little one in the corner that's not the most talented, but she's going to win under any circumstance. And that was me. And I think it's something you're born with. And um, luckily I was. I always look at my mum and dad now and think, who did I get it from? Because <laughs> both my parents were quite active, obviously, and they got me into sport from when I was from a very young age. But it was my dad that got me into running from about five years of age. But he's not the competitive one. It's my mum. My mum my mom is so competitive. So I think I was lucky I got the combination of, of, of my dad's ability but my mum's um, competitiveness. And so combine it together and 
that's why. That's me. Um, <laughs> so, yes, going back to your question, yes, I still am competitive. And we are lucky that in um, F45 we have these little things called – little challenges called playoffs. So I do get to get it out every now and again. And, you know, they're simple little things, but you come in and there's a little whiteboard and they'll have the number that certain people have done for a certain um, – activity and of course I have to beat it and I will stay there till I have beaten it (laughs) so I I still get my little fix every now and again oh yeah that sounds healthy totally yeah Yeah. very very healthy yeah (laughs) all right so you think that you weren't the most success or the most talented but you worked the hardest do you really I mean you had to have some talent in triathlon obviously like you were a pro triathlete for 24 25 years it wasn't all just hard work right like there was some some talent there it's interesting. I, I don't tell many people this story because it's it's a little bit embarrassing, but way back when I was in university, and this is when I hadn't taken on triathlon yet. I, I was sporty all my life through school, did gymnastics competitively till I was about 17, loved to run track uh, and loved to swim. So I, 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 did, I was one of those kids that did a little bit of everything and never really excelled at anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I got to university, I did the same. I, I joined a track team. I also played water polo. But I kept getting bored and that's why I eventually found triathlon. But when I was running, I remember there was a coach called Jack Pross and he was quite an, a famous coach in, in uh, New South Wales. He had some really good long-distance runners and he was a hard bastard. Oh, he was a hard guy. Um, and one day he said to me, Belinda, you know, you're never going to be a great runner. You've got great childbearing hips. You'll be a great mother one day. <laughs> I kid you not, that's what he said to me. So imagine saying that to a 21-year-old, 22-year-old, I think, at the time. And I remember that comment. That comment sat with me and grated on me for so many years. And I'm like, I'm going to show you, you stupid old man. I'm going to make it as an athlete. And the funny thing is, um, yeah, I made it as a professional athlete. I never had kids. So (laughs) it's just – and I don't tell too many people this story because it's like, What's he trying to say that I'm just not cut out? That I'm just I just don't have the physique to be to be an elite sports person. I think he was trying to tell me. Right. Um, and years later, obviously, I was trying trained by Brett Sutton for quite a few years, and he really he turned me around, and I won a lot of races under under Brett Sutton. And I told him one day because he knew this coach, and they're very very similar in their coaching methods in that they're hard buggers. Right. But he laughed and he said, "Well, you proved him wrong, didn't you?" And he and he said, "You know, Belinda." It's not just about physique or talent. It's it's about what you've got upstairs and, and what you can do with upstairs and what you believe upstairs. And yeah, he turned me around so many times because he just cha- he changed my headspace. Uh, and once he did that, I think I won maybe ten titles under him. So yeah, he's also I, I still, he's also known for being like super hard and intense too, like in messing with yeah. people's heads for sure. Oh yes, he is yeah, definitely, and and he and he knows how to get in them, and it's been almost impossible to get him out once he's got in. Um, but I think because I I joined him at a latter age when I was quite confident with myself and who I was, um, that it was actually a very healthy time for me because I was able to remove myself. Uh, and I was also I was also with Brett when I was married with Justin, so he was also fantastic to have as a have there, and it was a great balance. Hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I still think to this day, to be brutally honest, yeah, of course you have to be talented to win races. You can't do it just on your head alone. But I still think that it was upstairs more than, more than downstairs that, that um, got me across the finish line in first place a lot of the time. Um, I think back to, you know, obviously Ironman Canada is still one of my greatest races when I went over there for the first time and I was never, ever going to race that race because 
you know, Lisa Bentley was my nemesis. She beat me every single time she came to Ironman Australia and I'd almost given up. And I remember Brett saying, you know what, we're going to play at our own game and you're going to go over there and you're going to beat her. And I was, I, I still remember the day I was in Les in Switzerland and I said, don't be stupid. I'm not going to get beaten by her twice in one year. Come on, what are you trying to do? You're trying to kill me? And he said, you just don't get it, do you, Belinda? You don't get how it works. Um, all the pressure is on you when, you when you're racing in Australia. All eyes are on you. Everyone wants you to win because it's Ironman Australia and Foster and you're the, you're the Australian darling that's supposed to win. So the pressure's on you. She comes over, she's got no pressure on her. When you go over there, it's going to be roles reversed. And he couldn't have been more true. Huh. It, it, exactly as he said would happen, happened. And I, I keep goosebumps thinking about it now because, you know, a lot of, a lot of bad things are said about Brett Sutton and I understand it. You know, his past is not fantastic. I'm not, I mean, I'm a teacher, so I understand. However, put that aside, he is one of the most uh, intelligent, I suppose, he's a, he's a word I would use, um, coaches and one of the most successful coaches that I've ever come across in that respect. Um, and I know that there that there's no way that, one, I would ever have gone to Ironman Canada to race in the first place because I wouldn't have put myself in that position. And two, I certainly wouldn't have won it if it wasn't for some of the things he taught me, um, the mental game of it, so to speak. So, yeah, it's pretty interesting. What uh, what else, What do you think you learned that made your, like, mental game? Like, give us give us some lessons here, right? Like, what, what made your mental game so strong uh, over those years? And, and when I say this, please do not think anyone that was in the Sato squad was arrogant because they absolutely are not. That It's not that. I just think... The way Sutto coaches, you you get you train so insanely hard day in day out to the point where you are like the Walking Dead. That when he actually says to you, Belinda, in two weeks' time you're going to go and do a race, you're fist pumping because you know that that's two weeks that you're going to he's going to go a little bit easier on you, and that you're going to get out of squad, and you're going to get to sleep in, uh, do a race, and then have a couple of recovery days. So to you, it's like paradise. Uh, it's it's an escape. Um, and you also know that when you line up on that start line that you you look around and you are, without a doubt, the fittest, hardest-working athlete on that start line. Hmm. So you go in with that quiet confidence that no one on this start line has worked as hard as you. Uh, whether it is actually true or not doesn't matter. That's what you think because that's where you've come from. You've come from a, from a training environment where you are working so hard that you don't possibly think anyone could be working harder. So when you line up on that start line, that is how you think. You look around and you think, I am the hardest working person here. No one on this start line has done what I've done and I'm going to win today because of it. And you just don't doubt yourself. And whether people take that as arrogance or not, uh, I think you have to back yourself. And if you don't, um, then you're already setting yourself up for, for failure. And I know that when I've been on a start line, whether it be in Ironman Malaysia, Ironman Canada, I remember Ironman Lake Placid um, all those years ago, every single time I lined up, and I truly believed that I could win the race. I, I mean, Canada, I was definitely worried because Lisa always ended up running down and running was obviously my weakness. And I remember that um, Paul and Yubik Fraser came up to me with about eight kilometres to go at the run. And, you know, the run in Penticton was straight out, straight back. And at the end, you instead of run when you got to Main Street, instead of turning right and going straight to the finish line, you had to turn left and do a little dog leg, which I thought was so cruel. Um <laughs> But I remember with about, about 8K to go, Paul and Yubi Fraser rode up beside me on a mountain bike and said, oh, we've worked it out at the pace you're currently running and the pace is Lisa running. We think we're going to have a sprint on the finish line. And you were like, oh, God. 
And she was so excited about it because she said, this is the best thing that could happen. It's going to be great for the race. And I remember looking at her and I just said over my dead body and I just picked it up. And anyway, I think I ended up beating Lisa by just under two minutes. So, you know, it was probably only, what, 400 to 600 metres. It was not much at all. And I remember getting to see her on that dog leg section and thinking, thank God. Um, And, yeah, again, I wouldn't have had that self-confidence and that belief in myself and in my fitness if it wasn't for um, for Brett and the training we'd done and and the talks that we had leading into the race, so yeah, so it, it's it's hard. Obviously, the stories they're getting they're getting older and older now. I mean, those stories are a long time ago, but you still some things just sit with you forever, ever, and you're never going to forget them. And yeah, that's one of the things. And you know, I see it now. I see it now in Cam Watts athletes. So Cam Watt, who is obviously um, works. Not, not under Sutto, but he comes from the Sutto philosophy and he's got some great athletes now mm-hmm. and I get to train with some of them every now and again and I can see the, the mental side of them and, and when they train and when they race. Uh, and I saw it in Meredith Hill who mm-hmm. raced um, Challenge China two years ago when it was on. Um, and to see her race, and, I, and the reason I got to see her all day long is because I was doing the live updates on the back of a motorbike and I could see it on her face. And, and she was racing Lisa Roberts, who I thought on paper, I thought Lisa Roberts was going to run her down. Right. Um, great runner, one of the, phenomenal runner. And I just thought, look, even though Meredith's a great athlete, Laura's going to, uh, sorry, Lisa's going to run her down. And Meredith got a massive lead off the bike, but Lisa was running very, very well. And, you know, Lisa runs around three hours, sub mm-hmm. three. Uh, she's brilliant. And I thought, well, Meredith's probably on a good day going to be a 315, a 320 runner. Um but Meredith it reminded me in Canada, Meredith got the lead and she was not going to give it up under any circumstance and she ended up winning. And I got to the end and I said, you just reminded me of myself and I'm in Canada and, and you could just see that you are not going to lose this race. Whether you were supposed to win it or not, on paper, it didn't matter. And so you could see you can see that Cam Watts got that same sort of um, mental training that, that, that the Sato's got and, and Cam's using with his athletes and it's, and it's great to see. And there's some athletes that on paper – should not be winning or podiuming, mm-hmm. podiuming at races, and they are. So He's it's, yeah, the, it's interesting. His group's the Hills District, right? Hills District, yep. that's right. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. Okay, so we got to keep an eye on them. I was going to ask you yeah. who we should be keeping an eye on, and yeah. there you go. It's, well, it's just interesting because, you know, I think obviously our sport is definitely evolving. Each and every year we're getting more incredible athletes uh, lining up, and uh, obviously – for me, one to talk about, and I still talk about him all the time now, is um, Jan Fredino because he's what we call the, the complete package. Right. And there aren't many complete packages on the start line. Um, you've got some that have got, you know, got two or three bits to them that are amazing and then two or three that they can work on. But you look at someone like Jan Fredino, not only is he uh, physically so incredibly talented across all three disciplines, I mean, on no doubt, but he's got the mental aptitude to go with it. Like he's, um, I, I can't fault one thing about Jan Fredino as a complete athlete. He's got the mental side and he's got the physiological side. Um, so the more and more of those athletes we get stepping up to the plate, the harder it's going to be uh, for athletes like myself hmm. who, you know, obviously I was, a, I was an okay swimmer. I was a, a, a good bike rider. I struggled on the run. And I think with triathlon, the great thing is there'll always be room for people like myself that have that have just um, relying on that mental toughness. But I think as the sport continues to evolve, it, it is going to be be a little bit harder. Um, 
as, and the more yarn for Dino's we get on the start line, uh, the harder it's going to be. So are you saying that the talent's getting such that like you don't think you could be as you could win 15 anymore? Is that what I'm hearing? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know what? And the thing with me too, even when I was an athlete and at my at my best, I was always a realist. Mm. Um, for example, yeah, I won 15 titles and you know I won Challenge Roth and I had some fantastic races and there were races where I beat women that I shouldn't have. You know, I, I, I beat Christy Wellington and I've beaten Marinda Carfrey in races before. Um but did I ever do that well in Ironman in Kona in, at the Ironman World, World Championships? Not particularly. I mean, I finished ten. I finished top ten, I think, five times, but I never cracked the top five. Hmm. And I don't think I was ever – how can I say it? Not that I don't think I was ever good enough. I just don't think the race suited my strengths. And um, maybe I just – actually, you know what? Maybe I just wasn't good enough to ever get – top five there um and that's okay I'm okay with that because it just wasn't it wasn't my race and and, and I look at the field and I look at the women that have come top three there and I I still to this day don't put myself in the same league as as them I'm just outside of it so okay. yeah and I was look hey I'm I got into this sport as an age group athlete I didn't start as a professional athlete I had no um, no idea that I would be doing the sport for as long as I did or that it would be my profession for as long as it was. And it, it wasn't, if it wasn't for Justin, my husband, um, back then just my boyfriend that said, you know, you really should start taking this a little bit more seriously, um, I probably wouldn't have even thought I wouldn't have done it. So, yeah, I, I sort of say I was a professional triathlete by default, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and I was just lucky enough, you know, I got into the sport, because I looked in the mirror one day at university and I didn't like what I saw. I was I was overweight. I was unhealthy. I was unfit, and that was just not me. I was an, such an active, healthy person throughout primary school and high school, and I don't know. Somewhere in university, I lost my way. Mm. Uh, I was going out too much, drinking too much, and yeah, I woke up one day and I I just wasn't happy. So triathlon was really a sport that was going to give me my self confidence back, my self esteem back, my um, love of activity back and it did and then it gave me so much more mm-hmm. so you know I was an age grouper for several years before I, I turned pro- to professional sport uh, to professional being a professional triathlete and thank god I did because yeah most wonderful sport ever and as I said I still watch races now for example Daytona Challenge Daytona and I get so just as excited as if I was uh, lining up on a race line myself I mean, ask, ask Laura. Laura, Laura Siddle helped me a lot in Daytona this year and with all the pro athletes and we were both running around like crazy women, <laughs> loving, it, loving it. And then, yeah, to get to commentate it on race day, yeah, I have to actually take deep breaths and calm down because I don't want to get too crazy behind the behind the microphone. You're like, it talks slower and yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a bit like I'm getting now. It's like, take a breath, Belinda, just calm down. Um but, you know, obviously I, I am going to be in Challenge Miami in March because it's going ahead. And the field, I can't say much more at the moment because I haven't announced it yet and I'll get in big trouble, but the field that we have got lined up for that race is ridiculous. Okay, I, okay. I am just as excited to be announcing that race as I as I was for the PTO I've been um, keeping my eye on people's Instagrams. A couple of people have been like, oh, got to get the TT bike out to get ready for Miami. And I've been like, uh-huh, okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's actually crazy. We've um we've actually had to close the field. So about 10 days ago now, 
we had to shut the shut the race down because it's um for the pro athletes because um we've got so many athletes on the start line and not that it's a problem but one of the issues we face with the races in in um challenge north america is obviously they're all on nascar racetracks and to make it fair and because i am adamant that every single race will have the 20 meter rule draft rule um we have to limit the number of athletes on the track um and I wish I could let every single athlete race, particularly because of what I know they've all been through and the lack of racing that there's been over the last year. But um, unfortunately with Miami, it's a smaller track than Daytona and we just need to be very careful and we need to make it a fair race for those that signed up. So, yeah, it's uh, there's a waiting list at the moment for the pro athletes and hopefully I'll be able to get some of those people on the waiting list onto, onto the start line. But yeah, it's going to be a phenomenal race, that's for sure. I feel like Can't we wait. haven't actually told people what you're – so officially you are, your actual job is that you're the pro liaison for Challenge Family. What does yes. that entail? Does that just like involve getting everyone like their cut grapes and cold drinks? Yes. Like what does that mean? <laughs> hey, sometimes it does. Um, officially what it means is that any single pro athlete around the world can email me if they want to race a particular Challenge event anywhere around the world. Um, similarly, if there are race directors uh, around the world from our challenge events that want uh, specific athletes um, to race their event, then they can obviously they contact me and then I put them in contact with that particular athlete. So um, I just liaise really between race directors and pro athletes. Uh, but with this role with Challenge North America, um, I've got probably a little bit more I get a little bit more involved um, in the writing of contracts and mm-hmm. agreements, um, helping. At, you know, now with with COVID, it's there's a whole new um, array of things that have to be done. Uh, for example, even getting international athletes into the US uh, is is a full time job in itself. And we're lo- we're so lucky with the races there that we've got um, the help of NASCAR Legal. I think if we didn't have them. Uh, half those athlete, international athletes getting into Daytona wouldn't it wouldn't have happened in the same with Miami. So we're very very lucky that we've got the support of NASCAR to help us with the race. Um, and then when I get to Miami, I, I still will take on the role of pro liaison, but I'll have to step back a little bit because obviously my main role there will be the live commentary mm-hmm. uh, with Rick Allen. And Rick Allen was obviously the main commentator in Daytona and one of the main commentators commentators for NASCAR. So. That will be my main job there in Miami. But but in generally speaking, day in, day out, it is pro liaison. And when we're in a normal world and travel is possible, um, I'm probably traveling to races nearly every month for 12 months of the year, which I love. And my favorite thing absolutely is traveling to events around the world and being there for the week um, and taking care of the pro athletes. That's, yeah, one of my favorite things. Yeah, I mean, we talked about it a little beforehand, but... You had to quarantine for two weeks after you got back from Daytona because Australia is like very, and we mean like actual quarantine, like in a hotel, you're not allowed to leave. And you were posting on Instagram. There was bets. We had some bets on our team on if you were going to last the full two weeks because you were like (laughs) running on your treadmill like three times a day. Like you were working out like so much. It was pretty, yeah. Honestly, it's, yeah, it is funny because, you know, everyone talks about quarantine and I don't think until you've done quarantine in, in Australia or New Zealand, you don't really understand what quarantine is. And, yeah, quarantine in Australia and New Zealand is two weeks in either a hotel room or if you are lucky like I was, you get an, a one-bedroom apartment um, and you cannot leave. It's you are, You're not even really allowed to open your door. You're, you get food dropped at your door three times a day. You're allowed to open your door to pick up your little food bag 
But if you step your foot outside the door, there are security guards on every floor in every hotel um, who will say, please close the door. Um, and it's that strict. It really is. Even when I'd finished my two weeks, because we actually had all of our borders closed, uh, because Greater Sydney had a little bit of a had a little bit of an outbreak. I think you know maybe 20 people in the community had it. Um, so Queensland, where I live, had shut their borders. So I had to prove that I was travelling directly from my quarantine apartment directly to the domestic airport with my mask on, um, and I then had to prove like get on the plane and then show papers when I got off the plane that I'd come straight from quarantine. Otherwise, they were going to make me do another two week quarantine in Queensland. It's <laughs> And, you know, we say it's insane. However, you know, if you, as I was talking to you earlier today, if you were in Noosa, where I live now, and you did not have a TV or internet, um, you would not know COVID existed. We, you can say we're lucky, but I, I don't know if it's luck. It's the way that Australia has, has decided to, to, to move forward. We have such strict protocols. So getting in and out of the country is uh, very, very difficult. We've had people who are in uh, the UK working that have been there that have been trying to get home now for a good part of 12 months and they just keep getting bumped from flight to flight because we're only letting X amount of people into the country per week. I think per day it's it's even smaller now. So well, what if you go to Miami then and you can't get back? This is, and you know what, uh, and, and I have this discussion and I'll call it discussion, it, it turns into an argument nearly every time with my mum because she doesn't obviously want me to go. She doesn't understand uh, I was lucky with Daytona. I had no issues. I was booked on a Delta flight uh, straight in, straight back. There was never any worry about getting bumped. And that was I was quite desperate then because I timed it so that I was home and serving my two-week quarantine and out on the 23rd of December. If there had been any screw-ups by over a day, I'm, I'm doing quarantine in uh, – I'm doing Christmas Day in quarantine, which is what Amelia Watkinson and – um, Renee Kiley actually did, and I thought that was pretty amazing. Um, but this time I've got a little bit more leeway. There's no Christmas coming up. I think right. I can't believe it though. I think I've timed it to, again that I actually get out on Good Friday, so on Easter Good Friday, which is typical. But again, if if I get bumped my flight coming home, um, it is what it is. I'll I'll probably end up staying in LA. Um, I've been desperate to see my good friend Hilary Biscay, who obviously lives in San Diego. I haven't seen her for so long. So one little part of me saying, yeah, you know, if I get bumped off my flight, it's no big deal. I'll just knock on Hilary's door and stay with her for a week or her two. Her and her, like, five but kids and four dogs. Exactly. And yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, it'll be like, um, yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting for me. But I, I haven't seen her for uh, way over a year, maybe coming on two, three years now. So it would be awesome and I think that's it. It's just, again, it's changing your mindset and, and taking some good out of something bad. Um, hopefully I don't get bumped. We are supposed to be um, opening our caps up again on the 15th of this month, so letting more people back into the country. Uh, it hasn't happened yet, so who knows. But at this stage I'm booked on a flight back home and I should be back home, but if it doesn't happen, then you, I just don't think you can look that far ahead. I think you just right. have to take, with, the, with this virus test, take to every day, as it comes, the reason I'm going to Miami is because I truly believe in this race. Uh, Bill Christie, who owns Challenge, the CEO of Challenge North America, is such an incredible guy with such great vision for the sport um, that I don't want to let him down. I don't want to let myself down. And I think it's worth going over there and being a part of this because I think 
once we get back to some sort of normality, and I'm, I couldn't even tell you what that normality is going to be, whether it's ever going to be the same again, I don't know. But I do know that Bill and he's got um, an amazing woman, Gillian Wilkins, who is the race director working for him. And between the two of them, I just I love what they're doing with the sport and where they're going. And I think it's 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 going to be huge in the next few years uh, moving forward. Uh, Challenge Challenge North America's really they've got some amazing races coming up. And I want to be there for all of them. <laughs> it's funny though that you mentioned Hillary because I was thinking about when you were talking about Sutto, you guys were all there at the same time. I've heard yeah. stories from her and it seems like over the years, I mean, you traveled all around. You won like a lot of your races in Asia. You trained in Switzerland. You like, and then you guys are all like best friends from doing all this training together. It feels like it's the whole lifestyle is really part of what the 100%. appeal was. Yeah. 100%. Oh my God, you've hit the nail on the head. And I think for someone like myself that, you know, and obviously Hillary was the same. We were both, don't get me wrong, but both Hillary and I were super competitive. We took, we took being professional athletes seriously but you're, you're dead right. It was a lifestyle. And when we used to go away, like, yeah, training camps in Thailand, um, we were just, actually, Justin and my husband and I were just talking about our training camps in Thailand and one in particular where we'd been told we were staying in these amazing houses. We had these two mansions in Phuket in this place called Boat Lagoon. Uh, they'd just been built, so brand new, beautiful. It was the best accommodation ever. And we were working out what athletes were going to stay in what houses. And what we ended up having was the neat house and, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the slobs. And the, and the slobs were all the ones that didn't care. Uh, and then we had the tidy house, which was, you know, Nicholas Spirig was in that house. <laughs> I was in that house. Bella, Bale, Bella and Bella Bayless and Steve Bayless were in that house. Um, and then you had the other singles house, I think. Sam Renouf from the PTO was in that house. Hilary Biscay was in that house. All the young boys were in that house. And they were just the riffraff. Um, but we got there to these to these houses and we looked from the outside and, yeah, they were magnificent. They were these mansions. We're like, oh, my God, Sato's got soft on us. We've hit the jackpot. We got inside. There's bloody nothing inside them. Nothing. Mattress on the ground in each bedroom and that is it. No furniture, no cutlery, no plates, uh, a working kitchen but nothing to cook with. Um, they were literally brand new, like off the plan. So we all had to go out and we had to buy a couple of plates and knives and forks and spoons and rice cookers and sheets for our beds. Um, well, not even our beds, our mattresses on the ground, some towels. And, um, again, it was just typical Sutto form. And we, we lived there for a, a good part of three months and that's when Chrissy actually joined us. Okay. Um, for the first time, Chrissy Wellington joined us and um, she ended up staying in our, in our house with us. She shared a room with, with Nicholas Sprigg. Um, and yeah, some of the things we went through and some of the things we did. And I think that's why even after all these years, I mean, it could go 10 years and I haven't, I wouldn't have seen Hillary, but we would, we would start off where we left off because we have such a special connection because of all those years traveling the world, just doing the craziest shit known to mankind. Um, you'll never, you'll never lose that connection. And actually when I was in Daytona, I went for a couple of runs early in the morning with Sam Renouf from the PTO and we were just reminiscing of the good old days and some of the stuff we've done. And, you know, he, that's why I love that he is in the position he's in with the PTO because I know that he loves the sport the exact same way I do. Hmm. He really does. Uh, and he's such a smart man and I think having him at the helm is going to be such a great thing for our sport his heart's in the right place but he's also got the head uh, and the business head I don't have the business head for the sport I have the heart no doubt so um, I'm ready to do whatever's needed and I'll 
the pro athletes will always be at the forefront for me. They will always be the ones that I fight for. Um, but people like Sam, um, he has, and Dylan McNeese, for example, he's now working for in a similar role for me as I do, but for the PTO, mm-hmm. those guys have the head for it. So I, I just feel the sports in a really, even with this crazy pandemic going on around the world, I still feel like the sports in a really good place right now moving forward. Well, now I want to know like one of these crazy stories that you guys. <laughs> oh, well, one of the craziest ones I ever did with Hillary was at this boat. We were all staying at this boat lagoon and he, he said to Hillary and I one day, the day before, he said, "I because he always tells you, he never tells you what you're doing till the morning of, but this time, because it was so crazy, he said, he told us the day, the night before, he said, make sure you girls get a good feed tonight, um, lots of rice, so go up the road and get some, because we had a little place up the road that we used to go to, and she used to cook us the most amazing Thai meals for, I think, $5 Australian, it was crazy. Um, beautiful, like, chicken car, stir fries or chicken curries and, and loads of really good rice, stir fry. I mean, yeah, stir fried rice. And he said, make sure you go up there and, and eat, eat a good meal because tomorrow you, you're going to run from your from the house um, to the reservoir and the reservoir was a 7K loop around the reservoir. Uh, and he goes, and you're going to continue running till I get there. And we thought, oh, okay, that's not too bad. So anyway, he said, start early. He said, I want you starting in the dark. So we, Hillary and I got up at 4.30. We, I think we were on the road by 5 in the morning. It's about a 12K run from our house where we lived to the reservoir. Anyway, we started running together and we, we got through a, two or three laps of the reservoir. So we were on a long run by now. You know, as I said, 12-kilometre run to the reservoir and then each lap around the reservoir, was, I think it was just under seven kilometres. So we'd done about three laps and I, I said to Hillary, shit, when do you think he's going to show up? And she, she goes, oh, maybe another lap or two. Well, long story short, 64K later, 64K later, he turns up and he said, okay, let's, and he joined us at the beginning and he goes, all right, one more lap for you. It made it 64. So I think he got me just at about the 50, uh, the 56, 57K mark. Uh, And he said, last lap, he goes, I'll run it with you. Anyway, I looked at him. He's in his bloody Thai Thai massage pants and his um, Crocs, his fake Crocs that he picked up at the local market for about 50 cents. And I thought, how dare you turn up midday when we've already run 57K and think you're going to run the last 7K with me. So I took off like a maniac and dropped him after about, I don't know, 300 metres, but finished it off. Um, And then, you know, we all got to jump in the reservoir. But it was a day where every lap I just thought, surely this next lap he's going to be there and he's going to tell us to stop and he's going to turn up with cold drinks. We had no drinks. We had nothing. Um, so that was a hard lesson learned that day. And I just, I think that just taught me resilience and just to never, ever give up. And that, you know, even when you think you're done, you're not done, you're not anywhere near done. And that's why, you know, you look at people at about the 35, 36 kilometer mark of a, of a marathon or in, in the Ironman and you know, when your head's telling you you're done, but if you can just change your mindset, physically you're not done. Physically you could keep going for at least another 10 kilometres. And it was a really important lesson that Hillary and I took and, you know, we carried it for every other, for the rest of our races and I think that's why our, our DNF rate was so good. I, I don't think Hillary ever DNF'd and I think there's only two in my entire career I DNF'd at two uh, Ironman distance races and they've been my probably my only regrets ever in my whole career. So, yeah, it's you crazy. Even- finished a race when you had that uh what is the word iliac artery it was like your your blood 
artery was yes. blocked in your yes. leg. Yeah. Yeah. Same as uh, Mel Hauschultz had it. Actually, quite a few professional female triathletes have had the problem. And it's, yeah, um, endofibrosis of the external iliac. And yeah. honestly, I didn't even know what it was. At the, and it took the, the hardest thing for me was just getting a diagnosis. I think I had it for a good year and a half. Uh, and I, oh, I raced Kona so many times with it. I remember being in. Um, on Jeju Island in South Korea, and that was a camp that Sato took all of his athletes that had qualified for Kona. Chrissy Wellington was there, I was there, and quite a few others. And it was really, I had it really bad that whenever I did any hill work, so running uphill, um, I, I was literally rendered, um, I couldn't couldn't even train. It was awful because the, blo- the blockage at the end when I got it diagnosed, I, had, I literally only had 25% blood flow to my right leg, um, which is crazy to think about it now. But again, mindset. Because I actually didn't know there was an official problem, I just kept mm-hmm. uh, running and riding through it. And race day, because you are tapered, it, it wasn't as bad. And there were races like uh, Ironman Malaysia where I got away with it because the bike course was so undulating that, yes, it would hurt and it would feel like I, I was lacking power on the uphills, but then I would recover on the downhills. So there were races I could get away with it. But, again, yeah, it was it was purely that, that pig-headedness and that stubbornness and that never give up. Uh, and never DNF unless you know you're you're absolutely dying. Um, that 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 I was taught by Sato in some of these crazy sessions that he gave us. That uh, that yeah, I think that the two races I I DNF'd it was one was no, well, they were both Kona. No, no, one was Kona, and I can't even remember where the other one was. Wasn't the other was one like up. your first Ironman? Didn't Justin yeah, tell yeah. you like you, not yeah, to be stupid? Yeah, my very first um, Ironman, which was um, Ironman Australia and Foster. Thank you. See, I couldn't remember. So <laughs> that was my very first Ironman back in late 90s, I think 97, 98, and I DNF'd and I was so upset, devastated by it. I think I got got through. I got a flat tire. That's right. I got a flat tire on the bike and I changed to using tubulars on on the on the race and I'd never changed one before. I was um, – no, yeah, I was always using um, – high pressures and these I changed to these tires and I I never even glued one on before you know I did the the bike shop did that so I got a flat tire I didn't even know how to take the bloody thing off I had no tire levers nothing so stupid it was so it was such an amateur mistake and I ended up getting it off at the end by taking the skewer out of 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 the skewer lever out and using the the skewer edge to take (laughs) um the tire off but you know I wasted something like 45 minutes it was ridiculous and then tried to make up all that time I lost and blew my legs to smithereens, made it to 17K in the run and had to pull out. And then I, I think it was exactly 10 years later that I DNF'd in Kona. Huh. And oh, I just look, think back now and I just – that DNF was purely because I didn't want to have another bad race. It wasn't because I had an injury or I'd, I'd fallen apart. My head just I, – I, I fell apart in my head. And I, vow, I, I vowed to myself that day that I would never DNF because – my head caved in um, that I'd always make it to the finish line in some way. So I did live up to that and I never DNF'd again there, but I still really regret that DNF that day in oh. Kona because I just, you know, it, it's the it's the world championships and it doesn't really matter where you come at the end of the day. It's I think with that race it's all about getting across the finish line and I look at people now like, you know, Jan Fredino that time that he did it when he walked the majority of it and, and I could name countless professional athletes that have done that. And I just think that's the one race, the one race where you put, yes, you put it all on the line, um, but you owe it to yourself and to your sponsors and to your family and friends to, to finish in any way you can. What, uh, 
what other advice do you have for like up and coming pros? I mean, you talk to a lot of them. What else do you tell them besides like it's a, it's a in the head, not below, right? What did you say? How'd yeah, you say yeah. yeah, it's interesting. I and I, I think that what I used to say, you know, when I used to get asked that question as a professional athlete, one of the the things I used to always say was, you you've got to have balance. Mm. So I think the reason that I was able to be so successful for such a long period of time is one. I had a genuine love for the sport. I didn't get into that sport, into the sport uh, just to win races or to make money. I, I got into the sport because I loved the sport. I still love the sport to this day. And I think I had a really good balance. And it was like you said, it's, it comes back to lifestyle. Um, triathlon to me is a sport that it, it, it's, it's all about lifestyle. So I think that was one thing that I conquered was I just had such a great balance when it came to training, racing, and and living life and enjoying myself, mm-hmm. uh, so I still I still live by that motto today. For all professional athletes, um, doesn't matter how good you are. But now working on the other side and having to deal with professional athletes every single day, and some of the things I get asked from them and things that we ask in return, uh, and my friends on the weekend can vouch for it because I'm constantly not bitching but just getting angry because there are athletes that I think want to be professional, love the idea of being a professional athlete but don't necessarily know what that actually entails and what that means. Um, And so, yeah, they just – I wish – there was there were people out there that they could go to. Not and not necessarily. I'm not talking about managers. I'm talking about. I, I wish there were lifestyle educators, so to speak, that could that the pro athletes could go to for a like a for a, a long weekend session where they get taught how to behave like a professional athlete. That turning up to a press conference, um, signing signature cards uh, when 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 uh, racers ask for a photo to use. Um, can you send me a headshot to use for for uh, social media purposes? Don't send one that you've taken after a long run and you look you look like a pile of shit. I mean, we want to use this for social media, you know. So think about it. Um, and, you know, just little things that you automatically think as a pres- if you're a professional athlete that athletes would think about, but they don't. They don't necessarily understand um, the ins and outs of what. Being a professional athlete actually is. It's not just about lining up in the professional field on race day. Um, There's a lot more that goes goes to it. And um, there are some athletes that just get it and they speak so incredibly well uh, in front of others and you don't have to do a thing. And, again, I go back, I, I say this, but, you know, Jan Fredino, we he turns up to a press conference, I don't need to worry about a thing. I don't need to tell him a thing. I don't need to remind him about a thing. He just knows exactly what to do. He knows exactly what to say, what to wear. Um, Lionel Sanders is another one. Amazing, you know. And, in fact, Lionel Sanders in in Daytona um, the last couple of years, but particularly in 2019, we actually had to tell him to leave in the end because he was doing too much. Um, You know, he had so many age group athletes around him and he just wants to please and and make everyone happy that we actually had to say, hey, Aaron, take take him home you know he's got a race to do um so there yeah there are some athletes that just get it and they give so much back to the sport and then there's others that just need that little gentle reminder (laughs) gentle um, reminder Uh okay (laughs) but you know look in saying that we are so lucky uh the sport has so many amazing people involved and i i could i i don't even think i can count there's 
I have a little black book, I'll be honest. I have a little black book and there's probably only two to three names in that black book and they don't stay in there for very long. And when I say that, that's just athletes that have done something naughty or something that's that I've had to clean up a bit of mess afterwards. Um, and as, you know, if you look at other sports like soccer, over here we have football. Every day on the media they've done something wrong or they've done something that's got them into trouble. And I think with triathlon we're very, very lucky that most of the athletes, 99.9% of the athletes are brilliant and we don't really have to, you know, we don't have to do anything there. They look after themselves. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they get in trouble, but it's like, it's like, you know, A-level trouble. It's not. Exactly, you know. <laughs> exactly. It's just like, really? You, you didn't think that was a stupid thing to do at the time? And they're like, well, you know, I didn't really mean it, Belinda. And, and then like, oh, I'm really sorry and won't happen again. It's like, okay, we'll make sure it doesn't happen again. And then we move on. But they're all great people. And, and I love that we've got so many great personalities and, you know, different different personalities in our sport. It just makes it, it makes it really interesting. And you really got to see that shine at the PTO Champs. We're having so many amazing athletes there. Uh, and we, we have housed them all in two hotels. So mm. it was great to see them all there together. And one of the best things about that race, and I had to get up, I, I couldn't stay, which is so unusual for me, that on the Sunday night after the race, um, they all got together in, in the lobby bar uh, at the Daytona Hotel just to have a few drinks. And I was getting up at 4.30 the next morning to fly out some crazy hour. So I stayed for maybe one drink. Anyway, I went to the lift and I turned around and I looked and I just saw all of these athletes, you know, the best pro athletes in the world right now, just enjoying themselves. They'd all had the most amazing races um, and you know, obviously they'd all had hard years with COVID. And to turn around before I got on the lift and to look back and see every single one of them with a smile on their face, ah, it just it made the whole trip worthwhile and it just, even though I knew that there was going to be the worst two weeks of my life in quarantine, it didn't matter. I just went up to my room and I was just so happy to see them all just having the best time. And, you know, my job was done. It was good. It was good. <laughs> it, sounds so, it sounds so stupid, and, but it, it really, you know, pro athletes have had it really, really tough uh, the last year and they, some of them hadn't raced for a year. Others had only raced one or two times and just to see them having had an amazing race in an amazing location and were just being able to let their hair down and have a couple of drinks. Um, it was just a really nice, nice thing to see. I loved it. So that brings us to our, okay, so usually we end with a would you rather and I have the perfect would you rather for you, right? You're like known as life of the party. So would you rather race Kona or after party Kona? <laughs> That's so simple. <laughs> oh, I've had some shockers over there. Um, definitely after party. Do you know there's, it's funny. There's only really been no. I was going to say two, but there's been three. Three after parties that that I've always gone above and beyond for. As in that I I never miss them. Obviously, I'm World Championships kind of the after party. There is always epic. Love it. Love it. Challenge Roth. Mm. Absolute epic. I think every year I say I'm going to be home by midnight, and I get home around four o'clock the next morning. An absolute mess. Takes me at least a week to get over uh, Challenge Roth, but I never regret it. And then the third one is um, Phuket Triathlon. So oh, Laguna okay. Phuket Triathlon in Thailand. Uh, absolutely epic. And I missed I missed Challenge Roth obviously last year, and I missed Phuket. And I'm not only did I miss the races, obviously amazing, both amazing races, but I missed the after party and the people because they just. They always get the most incredible people there, and it's just, and it's a it was a big chunk of big chunk of my life that I missed last year is Challenge Roth and yeah Laguna Phuket, and if I can get back to those races again this year, ah, 
I will be the happiest person on earth. And yes, the after parties will be huge. You're like, oh yeah, if they if we have vaccines by then and it all happens and you can, oh, oh the after parties are gonna be crazy. Don't even talk about it. Oh, gee, that I, in a week to get over, it'll take me a month. <laughs> well, thank you so much for chatting with us, Belinda. You know, uh, always I fun. Love- Oh, I loved it. And yeah, whenever I get to talk about the sport of triathlon, um, yeah, it just puts a smile on my face. I just, I friggin' love it. I love it to pieces. So it's good. <laughs> Thanks to Sid and Belinda for all the gossip and all the fun and for just loving the sport so much. Thanks to all of you for listening. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or iHeartRadio. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review or share with a friend. In the meantime, keep training and keep listening.